Today I will be reading from Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the end of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. And his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I want to start by giving you some images that are powerful images from from history. And you might remember, it depends on how old you are, but uh, this was from 1989. Uh, One man uh, standing up to the Chinese tanks, four tanks, they're in Tiananmen Square. And that is uh, an iconic photo. It is a historically pregnant photo that has a lot of implications for life today. And uh, that one guy, there's all kinds, I got online and looked, there's all kinds of, of stories about him and they're kind of interesting but nobody really knows it seems for sure what happened to him he survived that day though i'll tell you that right there now let's go to this one this is from uh that was first one was tiananmen square and this is from uh what was called the prague spring of 1968 and it was an uprising in prague i've actually been to both these squares to tiananmen and i was in prague uh, or ventislaus square in the early 90s. And um, this man, I don't know if you can see it, but he has a brick in his hand. And he's throwing it against a Soviet tank. What do you think? Who's going to win that battle? Well, the Soviet Union is no more. I don't know if that guy is or not. But the Soviet Union is no more. If you want to get a taste of the Soviet Union, you can go over to Fremont. And over there with the troll, you will find a statue of Lenin, right? You know that? Um, it's kind of a, a joke of history now, although uh, don't tell Putin I said that. But anyway, uh, what we want to do this morning, I want to I teach you how to throw a brick at a tank. You up for that? Okay. And it's called prayer, because the kind of prayer we're going to be looking at this morning uh, that we're going to form is that kind of prayer uh, of people who seem powerless against uh, some pretty powerful forces, and you have the opportunity to change history as we do that. And history is troubling. I, I, I said this at, I, to the first service, that uh, you get tired, our hearts ache, our spirits get sore and tired from these places like Orlando and Dallas and Nice. And then after the service, I heard there was police shootings this morning, or three policemen were killed in Louisiana. So this, honestly, folks, this is the real world. And if we're not participating in the real world through real prayer, we're, well, we're not doing what we're called to do. So 
What I want to encourage you to do, to think about yourself, you probably, most of you have probably not thought of yourself as revolutionaries before, or radicals. And I, I have some Muslim friends that I know that their great concern is Islamic, radicalized Islamic uh, folks. And they should be concerned about that. I am. They are too. However, I'm not concerned about radicalized followers of Christ. To be a radical follower of Christ means that there is, you base your life around him. You become more like him. The way you act is the way he acted. I have absolutely no concerns. I will pray that for you and for me. That's why we're here. That is why we're here. And that's why we do the baptisms. That's what we hope for Samuel, to become that kind of, of follower of Christ. So, to encourage you, here when we pray the Lord's Prayer, which most of you may have known, there's a line in there called, Thy kingdom come, God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's not a throwaway line. When you pray that prayer, you're praying for the overthrow of every human government, including our own, in favor of the real king with the coming kingdom. That's what you're praying for. So pray that prayer, and you are radicalized. C.S. Lewis, whom I quoted heavily, I know, uh, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Hmm. The plot thickens, all right? So... You thought you were just going to church today, and now you're finding out that you're involved in sabotage and all the rest. Okay, well, get ready. Get your brick in hand. We're going to be learning how to pray in that way. Psalm 1, which we were in last week, uh, is about individual and how a person can walk in a way that's pleasing to God and is the right way to walk in this world. And it had to do with centering our lives on the law, delighting in God's revelation, his instruction, delighting in that, and then the image of a tree. When you do that, you're like a tree whose leaves are green and has fruit in season, and your roots go down deep into the living water. It's a beautiful imagery. Today, Psalm 2 is not about individual people walking in the right way. It's about the world at large, the sovereignty of God over controlling the whole world. And if you're, it's good, you can't pray. What's going to happen if you don't know that God is in control? How are you going to feel inside as you pray these prayers? You're going to, you're going to wimp out. Your heart's going to wimp out. You're going to, you're not going to feel the strength that would be there in, in boldness in prayer. You're going to just kind of be quiet and shriveling and what do I have to do as a small person with places like Dallas and Orlando and, and wherever? But the blank check has been given to us to pray boldly, and so we want to learn how to take up that brick. So here's our uh, quick outline here. The context, the different uh, context of this psalm, we'll look at that. The immediate and ultimate, uh, I'll use those words quite a bit. And then enemies in the psalm, because there are definitely enemies. We have to wrestle with that one. And then the realities behind the psalm as well. Okay, so the immediate context of this psalm, when it was written, uh, it was probably, we don't know for sure, but probably written by David on the coronation day of his son Solomon around 950 B.C., so roughly 1,000 years before Christ, roughly 3,000 years ago today, a long time ago. And 
David was the first real king of Israel. There was a false step before that named Saul, and that didn't work out. And David becomes the real king, and, uh, and then his son Solomon follows him. And then that, this psalm was probably used on every uh, coronation day for the kings of uh, the sons of, of, king, of David and Solomon down through history until the uh, uh, Israel is is sent into exile and is no more uh, around the year 600. So there's a the psalm had great great use. So on a coronation day, you would expect, and this is what we would imagine. I want you to visualize this: that there would be uh, there's this young king named Solomon. David is the king, and he's going to place the crown on his head now. He has a symbol of the future and a robe on him. And there's going to be a lot of singing and dancing and feasting and drinking wine or whatever that it would be appropriate to that day. But it's a celebration day, and this psalm is is a strong voice of that celebration. Okay, that's the immediate context for the psalm, when it was written. Now, the New Testament church, the ultimate context, or at least ultimate compared with what we just read, they put this song to, the psalm to use, and I want you to, it, it's instructive for us. So this is out of a prayer of really, really ordinary people that were the, uh, uh, in the early church. Uh, Peter and John were part of that. These are not the elite of culture, but they quote this psalm, and it's something that we can learn from. We too can quote this to reposition ourselves, uh, to get our bearings in, with this idea that God is sovereign over all even when we seem powerless. Why do the nations rage? This is right out of Psalm 2. And why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed one. That's the quote from Psalm 2. And then they go on to, uh, they keep praying. Uh, they're praying to the Lord. Indeed, Herod and Pilate met together with the Gentiles. That would be Rome, the Romans. And the people of Israel, so these were all Jews themselves, but the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus. Enable your servants, and this is the add-on in verse 29, enable your servants to speak, O Lord, with great boldness. Now the first thing we want to notice is that the anointed one is not Solomon, but this is almost a thousand years after Solomon, and the anointed one is Jesus. And so the immediate context has now leapt to the ultimate context. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah. That's the literal translation. And um, they understand that something big has happened, that this psalm can now help, help them shape this prayer. Now, these are, these are, like I said, ordinary people who are trying to figure out how to pray in light of a big event that God has done. And so they go back to this psalm, and they see Jesus in it, and then they shape a prayer around it. But what I want to say, look how bold they are. They are bold. And this is just a small group of men and women, roughly in the early 30s of the first century. And they are praying. They are throwing, they're picking up their brick and literally throwing it against the Roman Empire, which lasted a thousand years. I mean, what are the odds that Christianity would outlast the Roman Empire? They're right in the middle of that thousand years right now. But just what are the odds when Caesar is ruling. And they're praying this kind of prayer, this bold prayer of God deal with those in power in this world. I, I used to be, um, I've, I've said this before, but I had a, a lot of relationships with Air Force pilots. Air Force pilots, they have a way of, uh, I mean, these are, these, are the, these are the elite, at least in the Air Force. And they love to, 
show you or talk about the power that they fly with in those fighter jets or bombers. And do you know that, and I could say this with a straight face, and I would say it just to provoke them, and I would say, do you know that what you have is just next to powerless, next to the person of Jesus Christ? One word that he says can bring down your plane and hardly exert any effort. <laughs> That's the power of Christ. And you, you, you have to have that kind of inner, uh, what's the right word, structure of thought to pray bold prayers. Okay. This is what they're doing. They're throwing that rock out there in a bold way against the Roman Empire. And by the way, reminding you, we're going to be throwing out some rocks later on uh, against the uh, events of our day that we know are not good. Okay, let's go to the enemies. Um, In the context, the immediate context, or the, the, the immediate enemies that are addressed in this text, they are... This is a little history here, but in 950 B.C., so when this was written, the immediate situation was that David had conquered a lot of nations around Israel. And we know from history, let's just set the Bible aside for a minute, that there were great nations before Israel and that the Egyptian uh, uh, governments had, had been weakened at that point in history. So there was no great power on earth. And there was this little window of history when David and his son Solomon ruled Israel, where Israel filled a gap in world history for maybe 75 years or 100 years at the most, where they were a real power and they held sway. And then you had the great um, Assyrian Empire and the uh, Persian Empire, Babylonian Empire, Alexander the Great, Rome, all of those came later. But there's this little window, and it's called the Golden Age in the history of Israel, where David and Solomon ruled. Okay, there you go. So the prayer here, or the psalm, is addressing those enemies of Israel that are those peoples that are around them that are uh, rising up in rebellion against the rule of Israel. And that's the immediate. But if you go back to this, uh, in the time of Christ, the enemies are listed here. Herod, Pilate, uh, Rome, and, and then even Israel. The people of Israel were, ironically, they were against God's anointed one. And one of those who was most against God's anointed one was a young man named Saul, who we can read about in the Bible. Saul hated uh, the Christians. He, you could say he hated Christ. And then one day he had a, an experience on the road to Damascus, and he became converted. And then he began to see how he was at an enemy of God who had now been made a friend of God, and then he wrote his letters. And in his letters, he talks about how all of us are enemies of God. Now, I want you to look in your heart and ask the question, are you an enemy of God? And how do you, how do you deal with that? If you were to ask that question out on the street, most people would look at you kind of funny, and they would say, no, I'm not an enemy of God. And if they're an American, they would say something like, no, I believe in God. 95% of Americans would say that. But you can believe in God and be an enemy of God. Believe it or not. And in fact, the Bible says that Satan believes in God and trembles. So belief in God means something, but not maybe what you think. So let's break that down. I've used this before. It's based on research from the University of North Carolina, a sociologist there named Christian Smith. And he did a large survey. This has been heavily quoted on 
what people, especially young people, are saying uh, about their faith and who God is. So let's just run through the list again. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number one. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now the point I'm trying to make here is that it's easy to be a friend with that kind of God. There's just one problem. It's always in the details. That is not the God of the Bible at all, although there's some truth there. But that is not, this is not the God who thunders his holy presence from Mount Sinai. This is not the God who you can't even come into his presence without being psychologically undone, like Isaiah in, in Isaiah chapter 6. This is not the God, this is probably the clincher, this is not the God who allowed himself to be killed on a cross. Why would that have to happen? Is that just a waste of Jesus' blood? Or was there something between human beings and God that fundamentally needed to be healed? That's the question here. So when you talk about that kind of God, you can actually get online and find people that say, I hate that God. I hate that God. The God of the Bible is not friendly to human beings in the way we would want him to be. So there's an animosity. There's an, Paul calls it alienation between us and God. Ugh. So that's the Bible. And you can believe this or you can believe the Bible. It's all by faith. Either way, it's by faith. All right. So uh, then, once we get past that, we might be uh, wise to go back to Psalm 1 where we were last week and think about these people who walked with God, delighted in his word. The psalmist in, in uh, 119 verse 32 says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. So running in the path of God's commands is where we find freedom. Not outside. Not outside. Outside, we get into trouble. But the fundamental distinction of our day is that if you get outside of the rules, then you find freedom. True or false? This is how life is defined for us. In the psalm, it says that these people, these kings, they, when, the, when they come under God's authority, they feel like they have chains on or fetters. Throw them off. We want to be free to be kings on our own terms. Now, as Americans, we, are, we have a history with that word king, right? We are born as people who rebelled against a king. And we even celebrate it on the 4th of July, if you didn't know, you know. So we have to be on guard a bit about how we approach this uh, topic of being submissive to a king. So I want to give you a, and, uh, this is, uh, I can't remember the name of the, um, it's named after a guy, starts with a G, but don't tread on me was one of the, uh, uh, the catchphrases of the early republic or the American Revolution. And it's a snake, which is interesting. Uh, but basically saying to King George, get away, just get away. And then one of the quotes from the early American fathers is, in America, everyone is a king. So I just want you to think, where is the line here? 
if everyone is a king. And then we go to the book of Judges in the Bible, and four times at the end of that book, it says that in Israel at that time there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We need desperately a king. Now, it may not, we don't need King George, we don't need an earthly king, but we do need a strong ruler over us. And so the enemies, as we think about this passage, the enemies are not just Herod and Pilate and Rome and uh, whoever else is listed there, but we're included in it too. And the way that we get out of being an enemy to becoming a friend is to allow God to show his love to us, which is infinitely expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. All right. Now we're going to, the ultimate reality, and if it bothers you that there are enemies listed in the Psalms, you will be heavily bothered because um, a lot of the Psalms, maybe, maybe not the majority, but a lot of them talk about the enemies and praying against the enemies. And um, I know that that is kind of troubling to modern sensibilities, uh, especially when God says in the New Testament through Jesus, he says, pray for your enemies. And so we need to think about this just a little bit uh, more deeply. And the way we think about it, at least one of the ways, is to bring up something else that offends moderns, and that is the idea of powers of darkness that are behind the evil that we see, that we don't see everything. We don't see everything good and and powerful, and we don't see everything bad and powerful. And that through our prayers, through our bold prayers, that we are encouraged to pray here, that we can actually reshape history by praying against uh, the ultimate reality that is there in the person of Satan. So Paul picks up on this in the New Testament. And the New Testament writers, um, what, what, the New Testament gives you more revelation, more light, and they use that light to see reality, and behind reality, they see the powers of darkness. And they realize that it's not, it's not people, it's not flesh and blood that are the real enemy. Paul says this in, in Ephesians 6. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, people, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You get this and you understand a lot. You miss this. I would say you are very naive. Very naive. People want to understand why evil exists in the world. Well, it's not everything is seen. And people think that, uh, moderns think that if we rely on things that aren't seen, then we're naive. So you have a little bit of a tussle here between uh, accepting Scripture or rejecting it. But I would say the naivete, as you look at the world in which we live in and where we try to describe what happens in places like Dallas and Orlando and Nice and wherever is next, that understanding this is very, very helpful. And it's not about politics, and we're in an election year, right? Right? If I'm the first to tell you that, you need to wake up. And it's not about which party. We, we can't demonize one or the other. Because by demonizing them, we're missing where the real demons are. And Paul, when he wrote this, he asked people, he had one specific request when it comes to how you deal with politicians. He says, you pray for them. And he says, specifically, you pray for the king. And for, in his case, the king was Nero. And Nero was not a good guy. Nero was very wicked. And Nero ended up beheading Paul. But you pray for them. You walk by faith, not by sight, Paul writes. Okay, the plot thickens. So, are you ready to pick up a brick and throw it? Come on. <laughs> 
I just had this horrible feeling like I've just spent 20 minutes not convincing you to pray with me. All right, we're going to pray. But I want you to think deep down whether this is the first time you've ever really prayed or just maybe it, it, it's been a while or whatever. But I want you to think of yourself with a brick in your hand and maybe that Soviet tank is there to help imagine what you're doing because it seems impossible. But we're going we're gonna to throw that brick in the way we throw prayer. So we're, we're not hurting anybody. In fact, we're trying to bring life and light to this world. You have a line here that I'm going to give you, which comes right out of the Psalms. And it's um, Psalm 140, verse 8. If you could hang on to this one. It's a beautiful, uh, uh, I think it's an easy prayer to remember. I, I pray it quite often, especially as I'm listening to the news. Here it is. Frustrate the, the plans of the wicked. Let's say it together. Frustrate the plans of the wicked. So we can pray that prayer, knowing that right now, in places on this globe, there are people who are planning to do harm and evil to others. And we can pray that prayer boldly. And we don't know. uh, The outcomes are not up to us. But we can believe that perhaps we are going to stop some of that this morning. So frustrate the plans of the wicked. That's the immediate prayer that for the things that we can see in the sense of the, that they're part of this world. For the things that we can't see, we're going to pray. Here's your line. It's from the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. So say that. Okay. Frustrate the plans of the wicked. Deliver us from evil. You'll figure out where your part is. Let's pray. Lord, for our immediate enemies, for that next news story, for the things that uh, are part of this world that we are so tired, our hearts hurt for uh, this world, for people, real people, in real places. Lord, we pray against those who are conspiring and plotting to take innocent blood and bring terror. And so we pray, frustrate the plans of the wicked. Again, Lord, we are uh, praying against those who are motivated by anger, and by hatred to bring harm to others, we pray, frustrate plans of the wicked. Lord, for those who are in, just find themselves maybe in harm's way, we have no, it seems so random, so random to us from where we sit, but we would pray for your guidance, sovereign will to sort that out in a way where innocent men, women, and children would not be harmed. And again, we pray together, frustrate the plans of the wicked. And Lord, we, we don't want to just pray uh, against who we perceive as our enemies, the terrorists, those, uh, Lord, who mean harm. We also want to pray for, we want to pray for justice. We want to pray for racial reconciliation, especially in our cities, in Minneapolis, in Baton Rouge, in Seattle. Lord, wherever those cities are, we pray for your justice to come. And then, Lord, we go beyond that and pray for our enemies. We would pray that their hearts would be opened to the love of Christ. So that's our prayer for this world. Now, Lord, we turn our hearts to what we cannot see, the ultimate reality of evil and its source. So, Lord, we remember that what we see is not all that there is. And so we pray together Deliver us from evil. 
Lord, we remember our own hearts to you, that we are prone to evil ourselves, that we are not the righteous praying against the evil, but that we have evil in our own hearts. And part of that same prayer is, lead us not into temptation. And so we pray together, deliver us from evil. Lord, we pray against the devil, and who is just a master expert at using lies and deceit, and who loves to steal and destroy and bring death. Lord, that is his way. We pray against him through the name of Jesus Christ. We pray against his schemes and his plans and his conspiracies. Deliver us from evil. And in all of this, Lord, we pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done, the most subversive prayer that we can put on our lips. We pray that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.